0: Welcome to the Dear Katie Podcast. My name is Katie Kastner,
1: And I'm Claire Kaplan. Before we get started, I just want to remind our listeners that sometimes the discussions in the podcast can be really difficult to hear, especially for survivors of trauma. So we encourage all of you to take care of yourselves, take care of your safety and well-being, reach out for emotional support from someone, family, friends, counselor, or a hotline. Additional resources may be found on the Take Back the Night Foundation website. And we'll give you that address at the conclusion of the podcast. Thanks so much,
0: Claire, and welcome. Our guest today is Ray Beth. Ray Beth, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your journey with our listeners. Uh, to help them out, just for a little bit of background, could you share, you know, a little brief bio of who you are at the moment, where you
2: are, what you've done. Sure. So I'm from a small town in New England. Uh, I'm currently a graduate student in a social work program. I will graduate next year with my master's in social work. Um, I'm on the macro travel. I'm focused on community outreach, uh, community organizing, education, and advocacy. Um, I live with my parents, and I have two brothers, and I have my dog here. And uh, I was raised Catholic, so I am uh, a Roman Catholic. That's pretty much that's that's awesome. That. Thank you so much.
0: That was that that was a quick overview. Um, just to com- clarify. So you went to undergrad as well in New England or I did. And now you're on your you. Did, I I missed one thing. Did Did you finish your master's in social work yet or no? Not yet. No, nope, I'll graduate next year. Hooray. Right. Okay. Well, we have a lot then. Um, you know, a lot of life lived so far. So what experience brings you to your microphone today?
2: Um, so I am a survivor uh, a few times over. Um, and the work that I'm doing currently, which uh, we'll discuss a little bit later too, I guess, um, is in community organizing advocacy and education on sexual violence awareness and prevention, but also being a survivor.
0: And so, you know, what experience was it that happened to you?
2: So uh, the first experience that I had, I was 13 years old. And so I'm from two very small towns in New England. They're about 15 minutes apart. Um, I moved my seventh grade year from one town to the other. And I had a very difficult time acclimating to my new school and became friends with one girl who happened to live right up the street from me uh, in the town that I just moved to. And she and I became quick friends. And I think we bonded because our peers didn't treat either one of us well. Um, because For me, it was because I moved and I didn't want a new kid in the school. For her, it was because her family had some financial issues and she was not quite as well off as the rest of our peers. Um, and to kind of clarify, so the town that I moved from that's about 15 minutes away is really kind of a middle to lower class kind of farming community. Um, and the town that I moved to is very well to do very well off. These are kids whose parents are doctors and lawyers. I had a peer whose father was the CEO of a company. So, I mean, these were kids that grew up with a lot of privilege, which myself and this girl I've been friends with that I met when I moved. We didn't grow up with that kind of privilege. So we bonded very, very quickly and we became really good friends. She was at my house a lot. She would stay over for a week at a time during summer vacation, or would be here on weekends during spring break, or, I mean, you know, we would swim in our pool together, and she would borrow my clothes. My parents always made sure that she was clean and well-fed, and I thought that we were really good friends. Um, In March of 99, I was invited to her birthday party, and that was the first incident that occurred was, uh, it was a sleepover birthday party. And myself and the rest of the guests were going to stay out in their camper with the birthday girl. And we were headed out the door to the camper. And I was kind of the last one to leave the house. And right as I was approaching the door, her father stopped me from behind and told me he needed to talk with me. So I stayed behind where, when everyone else left to go out to the camper. And he pulled me aside. And he sounded very, very angry with me. And he told me I needed to go back in the living room, sit down on the couch, and not move a muscle. I thought I had done something wrong. So I obeyed orders and I went back and sat on the couch and didn't move. And he came, I remember he came into the room and then he left and kind of was looking around the downstairs, which at the time I didn't understand. Now looking back, I realized he was probably looking to make sure nobody was around. But after he came back into the room, he stood over me for maybe a minute and kind of looked me up and down. And the next thing I knew, his hands were up my shirt and under my bra. And I completely froze. And I was trying to make it logical, trying to make sense of it, and trying to understand why he was doing what he was doing. I couldn't understand why he would want to do what he was doing. And the next second, something in my brain clicked that said, this can't happen. And I somehow managed to fight him off of me and was able to get away from him And I managed to get to the phone and called my parents. And once I'd gotten outside and I called my parents, I was worried that he might be outside looking for me. So I didn't feel like I could be honest with my parents about why I wanted to come home. Because I was so afraid that if he heard me telling them what he had done or tried to do, that something worse would happen before my parents could get there. So I lied to my parents. I told them that I would gotten really, really sick and I had a really bad migraine and I needed to come home. And they said, okay. They said, you know, even though we only live about a quarter mile from their house, it was probably nine thirty, almost 10 o'clock at night by that point. And they're like, all right, it's going to take us like 20 or 30 minutes, but, you know, one of us will come get you. And during that 20 or 30 minutes, he did a couple of really heinous things that were used to silence me and it worked. I, he made me so afraid to say anything that even after I was home, I never told my parents what had happened. Ray ben,
0: can I, you, you're being so brave. Um, I, and I wanted just to back up for a couple of moments. Is that okay? Sure. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Your story, you know, is terrifying all at once and you're being so very, helpful and clear about what happened. And I wanted to actually, you know, just remind our listeners, and you correct me if I'm wrong, right, Beth, you said, this is your friend who your family really supported, and you're over for her birthday party sleepover at her house, and you're 13, you're in seventh grade.
2: Do I have that? Correct. Uh, I was in, so I was in eighth grade at the time. I was. Okay. So March, April, May. So I was about three, three to four months away from graduating from eighth grade.
0: Yes. And you're still 13. I am. Yeah. So, um, I, I don't recall if you mentioned this dad, was he, did he have a partner? Did, did your friend? He was
2: married. He was married. And do you remember where the wife was? She, I know she was home. She must have been upstairs asleep would be my
0: guess. That's so interesting because some of our conversations in terms of prevention, Raybeth, have been about like, who else knew what was going on with children and who else, whether it be at a school or within the same house and who else was not paying attention basically, or ignoring um, signs and symptoms. And my other thought for you was, do you think, he, you described how angry he was. Was it his tone of voice? Was he menacing? Was he touching you? Um, did he grab your hair, your shoulder to get you back in the house when you sounded so angry? And do you think he was drinking or using drugs at the time?
2: I don't think he was drinking or using drugs. I've questioned that off and on, but I don't believe he was. But when he pulled me aside to tell me to stay behind, his his tone of voice was very angry, mm-hmm. which is why I complied. Was because he was actually yelling at me, telling me that I needed to stay behind and that he needed to talk with me and that there was an issue.
1: There you are outside the house. He did some scary things to make you stay silent. Did you wait for your parents to take you home, or did you
2: not I wait? To swap so I say no. So I stayed home. I stayed because uh, we also live off of a main road. Mm -hmm. And one of the rules my parents had was that my brothers and I were not allowed on the main road, no matter what time of day it was. Mm -hmm. That was a big, big rule in our house because we live on a straightaway and people fly down the main road. So we were not allowed to walk on that road. Okay. And so I was always, so I'll say this too. I was always the good kid. I was always the kid that followed the rules that never liked to get into trouble. I wanted everyone to be happy with me. Didn't want to cause any upset. So I was always a kid where it was like, okay, if I'm told to do something, I'm going to do it. You comply,
1: yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. So he had he he knew his target. So he then what? So so you didn't tell your parents. Time passes, and then what happened?
2: So six months. So for about six months after this happened, on the bus, either going to or from school, his daughter constantly, almost on a daily basis, would you know come hang out with me, come hang out at my house, and I kept putting her off time and time and time again because I didn't want to go back to that house and finally on Friday September 17th of 1999 I was three weeks into my freshman year of high school and we had a half day that Friday at school and we got on the bus and she was like hey like you know you know it's just gonna be the two of us at the house just you know come hang out with me just for a little bit nobody else is gonna be home it's just gonna be the two of us you know, just for a little bit, please, you know, I'm always at your house. You never come to my house. Please come hang out with me. And I really kind of tried to put her off again. I tried to ham and haw. And one of the things that she said that still plays in my mind to this day, that should have been a red flag back then, and it wasn't, was that she looked at me and she said, you know, if you're worried about my father being home, he's not going to be home. He's going to be on the road for work. And I look back on that now because I realized that six months prior when he attempted the first time, she hadn't been anywhere around. So how would she have known that that's what I was worried about? And at the time, that didn't, for no reason, that didn't strike me as odd. And so hearing that, I finally said, okay, you know, that's fine. You know, I'll go home and I'll ask my mother. If my mother says I can come over, I'll come over. And I went home and asked my mother. And my mother's first reaction was no, absolutely no. I said well why not and she was like look she's like you know there have been some rumors around town lately and I'm not going to get into what those rumors are but I really I just I don't want you over there and I was like "All right, look they're just that they're rumors this family is not as well to do people like to give them a hard time you know they assume they're bad people because they don't have as much money and she's like yeah but the rumors are about one specific member of the family and I just I, I don't want you over there and, of course, being 14, I did what any 14-year-old would do. And I pitched a little bit of a fit. And I complained and only because I wanted to just go over to this house, hang out with her, and be done so that she would stop asking. That was the biggest reason for my going over there was simply to get her to leave me be and stop asking. And finally, after about 10, 15 minutes, my mother finally gave in and agreed to bring me over to my friend's house. And the last thing my mother said to me before I got out of her car that afternoon was if her father is home, do not go. So, you know, I basically, you know, I agreed to that because his van was not anywhere in the driveway. So it appeared that my friend was right that he wasn't home. So I agreed to those terms. And my mother, as I was shutting the door, said, and I only want you staying one hour. I thought, okay, there's my out right there. After one hour, I can get out of here. I can come home. All right. One hour and count. And so my mother drove away, and it wasn't until she drove away, I went up and knocked on the side door, and who opened the door? But her father. And I ended up finding out they had a vacant lot next to their house that was pretty, there was a pretty decent grove of trees uh, in this abandoned lot, and he had hidden the van in that grove of trees in the abandoned lot next door so that I wouldn't know he was home. And gut instinct immediately, as soon as he opened that door, was Something's wrong. Something is not right. Gut instinct told me, turn around, go home right now. Like, don't stick around. Forget the rule about not being allowed on the main road. Just Mm -hmm. leave. And unfortunately, I rationalized it and I justified it and thought, well, okay, maybe his work schedule changed. Maybe he didn't end up having to work. It is his house. He's allowed to be there. It doesn't necessarily mean anything's wrong. Maybe I'm just overreacting. And so I went into the house and was in his daughter's room with him and we were hanging out and he had brought his band back around to the driveway and he came into a room and was like, Hey, you know, you guys had a half day at school because it was a half day. The school didn't feed you guys lunch. Why don't I take you guys out for pizza? And I immediately thought, uh, I probably shouldn't. Like I was told not to go anywhere. And I, but then I stopped and was like, "All right, but it's only a 10 to 15 minute drive. It's a public place. Really, nothing could possibly happen if we're going to a public place. So, I unfortunately agreed to go. Um, and I told him very clearly that I had to be home in one hour. And he was like, Yep, no problem. We'll go, we'll eat, we'll come back. You know, you'll be home in less than an hour. And I was like, You know, all right. And I actually, for a couple of minutes, stood outside that van, still trying to decide whether or not I really should get in that van or whether or not. I should just make up an excuse and turn and go. And his daughter looked at me and said, Look, it's gonna be fun. You know, not you know, what do you think is gonna happen? I was like, Yeah, you know what? You're right. I'm probably being ridiculous. Got in the van, really didn't think much of it. As soon as that door was closed and we started driving, I don't even think we were out of their road yet. And the question started. And it was, How old are you? Do you have a boyfriend? Have you ever done anything with a guy? And the questions just kept getting more inappropriate as we drove. And his daughter at one point piped up and told him that I was a, quote, little Virgin Mary prude who had never even kissed the guy. And I remember hearing how disgusted she sounded. Like, that's the thing that stuck out to me that she just, like, it was just almost like an unbelief that she couldn't believe that I was 14 and had never even done that. Which, again, that right there probably should have been a red flag. But he caught my eye in the rearview mirror and told me that he was going to have a lot of fun with me. And I knew. So we did go to the pizza place. Unfortunately, we never actually went for pizza. Um, I was physically restrained by his daughter in the confines of his van. Sexually assaulted for about an hour and a half from what I can figure out of the timeline. Um, he did make me go into the restaurant with him and his daughter to eat afterwards. I attempted to escape. My escape was short lived. I was put back in the van, driven back to his home. Um, he drove back to their home on the wrong side of the road, threatened my life, told me he was going to crash the van intentionally and was going to kill me. Got me back to his home. I was taken from his vehicle and physically forced back into the home. And he was about to continue the assault and, his wife mercifully walked in the door and for whatever reason that scared him off of me and mercifully he was not able to rape me and his wife basically told me that she would take me home and I was I'd gotten out of the house and was getting in his vehicle and I'll never forget this he camped behind me and he tapped me on the shoulder and I turned around and he stuck out his hand and said no hard feelings it was all just the game we were all just playing a game. And I realized that it was not a question, it was a statement. And one that I damn well better agree with. And I don't I don't even know if I responded and he just walked away whistling like nothing had happened. And his wife took me home. But then after that the following Monday he began dropping his kids at my bus stop with me every morning during school and would threaten me. And that kept me quiet for six years. So I never did press charges.
1: In prior conversations, you mentioned one thing that he did, the sort of tormenting he did when he was abusing and he was saying things, making you say certain things.
2: Yeah. So he was, the best word I can use to describe it, he was sadistic. (laughs) Verbally, emotionally, mentally, psychologically. He would say things like, If you tell me that you like this, I'll stop and I'll never do it again. And as soon as I would force myself to say those words and say, Okay, you know, you told me you'd stop he would look at me and just sneer at me and go, you really are stupid, aren't you? I'm not stopping. You're my captive to do it as I please. And a few minutes later it was, if you tell me you like it, I will let you go right now. I will let you out of this van and I'll drive away. And I'll let you find your own way home. I will stop. All you have to do is tell me what I want to hear. And I would make myself say it again and say, okay, you know, now you promised to let me go. And it was the same thing. Like, you really are stupid, aren't you? I'm not letting you go. I mean, he, every time he would tell me, you know, if you tell me what I want to hear, there would be a promise attached. And even after the first couple of times, even when I knew he probably was not going to follow through, at 14 years old, I was not ready to let go of that hope that just maybe I could end it by saying what he wanted to hear. And he also, the reason that he and his daughter gave me for doing what they did to me was because I was Catholic and they hated me for it. And they wanted to destroy the fact that I was a nice person, I was a good person, that I was a virgin. They wanted to take that all away
1: from me. Wow. What a powerful story, uh, Raybeth. And it's such a scary scenario. It's just, it's really torture that you experienced. So, How did you grapple with that? Once, How did you get... Okay, so his wife dropped you at home? Yes, his wife dropped me at home, yeah. So you walk into your house. I mean, what, what what happened? I mean, what could you do? So, I mean,
2: I came home, and I remember walking into an empty house and not understanding, because my mother told me to be home in one hour. And even at 14 years old, I couldn't understand why... It had, you know, I remember, look, I remember looking at the microwave clock and seeing 6.37 p.m. on the clock in the microwave and realizing I had been gone for five hours. And yet I came home to an empty house. My mother was not there, worried about where I was. She was not out looking for me as far as I knew. Why was nobody concerned that I hadn't come home after an hour? But then I thought, okay, well, maybe she went out right after she dropped me off. Maybe she didn't realize that I was gone for five hours. Maybe she thought I had been home that whole time. Because this was, you have to you know, keep in mind, too, this was 1999. This was pre-cell phone. Right. So it's not like she could have called me to check in. So my assumption to this day is that, as far as she probably knew, I probably had come home after that hour. It's not something we've really ever discussed. But I remember just being completely numb. And I remember going upstairs and getting into my parents' big jacuzzi tub And running the water as hot as I could possibly stand it. And I sat in that water for three and a half hours. And just scrubbed myself. Until I was nearly raw. And I remember getting out and putting my clothes in a plastic bag. Tying the plastic bag shut. And was coming. I came out of my parents room. Put that plastic bag in the back of my closet. Where I never had to see it again. And... I don't know. I must not have closed my bedroom door completely because so my mother popped her hand in my room and just said, oh, you know, how was your friend's house? And all I do was look at and go, oh, fine. I went to bed, got up the next day and went and taught my first grade catechism class like nothing had happened. And I stayed, I think to some degree I stayed numb for the majority of the rest of my high school years. But at the same time, looking back, as much as I felt numb, I was a really angry kid. And I actually have been in contact with a few of my male teachers from my high school in the last few years who Mm -hmm. said, you were just, you had so much anger in you. And boy, did you unleash it. I don't really remember that being the case,
1: but they're probably right. That's really interesting. So you somehow made your way through high school. Did you and this girl ever discuss what happened?
2: We didn't. We never talked that the only time we talked about it was that ne- was that following Monday after her, uh, her father dropped her at the bus stop mm-hmm. and he drove away after telling me that he knew where I lived and that he would come back. He would take me again. He would finish when he had started and that the next time around, I would not be so lucky. And that if I was smart, I would stay quiet. And he drove off and she looked at me and said, just remember you go to the police and they come interview me. All I have to tell them is I was there too. He made the whole thing up. You, you know, there, wow. you know, you have no bruises. You have no, you know, you have nothing on your body to say that anything happened. All you have is your
0: word. Um, my, my question, Raybath. You know, I, I want to speak to a word you used, which, which was angry, and so many of our survivors, you know, don't get angry enough but I, yeah, and, or they're not clear that sometimes they get angry at themselves instead of their perpetrator. And I wanted to explore the concept of anger with you and what that meant um, in high school and then later in life. What
2: does angry sure. mean
0: or what, what do you th- how do you think you manifest it?
2: So in talking to these few male teachers, they, I do remember a couple of like IEP meetings I had, I have a slight learning disability I do remember a couple IEP meetings where a couple of my male teachers kind of were like, you know, she's had an attitude lately, you know, she's, you know, not doing what we're telling her to do. I believe during one IEP, I believe I called one of my teachers Neffing Jackass, if I remember correctly. <laughs> um, I would call names, um, I mean, I just, any, any, like, it could be any bad day in the world. And, I would wait until one of those male teachers crossed my path. They could look at me the wrong way, and I
1: would go off on them. So did you was this anger directed at teachers in general or just male teachers? Just the male teachers. I had no problem with my female teachers.
2: But by the same token, the interesting thing is that two of my favorite teachers, and really the two teachers that got me through high school, were both men. But we had a very, I don't know what you want to use, I don't know what word to use still to this day for this relationship, but there are days where I wanted them nowhere near me, where I would let them have it verbally. I would lash out at them. But then there are other days where all I wanted was to be around them because they were safe and I wanted that safety, but then it would be the same thing. I'd want safety for a while and it would be like, Oh my gosh, but what if I let them in too much and something happens? Okay. Now I need to push them away again. And I would lash out again and just apparently I would be horrible to them. Nobody would ask, try to find out what was going on? No. I mean, I'll tell you something. I mean, all through high school, I stopped doing schoolwork. I was not doing well on tests. I was barely, I was on, I was on the track to barely graduating from high school. And toward the end of my junior year and all through my senior year, I would get called into crisis meetings at least once a week with my parents. And my teachers would sit there, you know, she's not doing homework. She's failing my class. She failed my test. She's not studying. She's lazy. She's unmotivated. But yet, not one of those teachers ever stopped and looked at me and said, Can you explain yourself? That's amazing, Ray Bath. And I, what I was thinking
0: about is how we could hide sexual abuse of women through using any other explanation other than the very obvious fact that one in four of us go through sexual abuse. And they were probably, you know, when you said, I have a slight learning disability, they, probably were more comfortable dealing with that than the honest truth of your abuse.
2: What do you think? So it, so it was that, but it was also, so we've actually had that discussion in the last probably 10 years or so. And part of it was that I went back to lecture for my psychology class, my health class from 2007 to 2012. And the lecture I gave in 2012, a bunch of my former teachers sat in on that lecture and they came up to me afterwards and said, we had no idea. And I looked at them and I said, how could you not have known? At 5 feet tall and barely 100 pounds at the very beginning of my ninth grade year, by the time I graduated high school, I was 223 pounds. I took scissors and cut off my own hair in front of you. I painted my fingernails black. I lashed down at male teachers. None of that struck you as odd? And they looked at me and said, well, honestly, I mean, we kind of figured it was just You know, teenage angst, I mean, a lot of teenagers go through that, like, you know, what do you want to call it, emo stage, like, you know. Right. That's not necessarily an indicator of anything. Right. And I looked at them, I said, look, I did everything humanly possible except put a neon sign over my head. I screamed out the fact that something was very wrong. And yet not one of you noticed And not one of you thought that just maybe there was more going on. Mm -hmm. And finally, my PE teacher, who's also one of the health teachers, uh, who actually is a family friend, looked at me and said, to be completely honest, we're teachers. We're not social workers. We're not trained to to know what's going on. That's not our job. The reason that we were hired is to teach the curriculum that we're expected to teach. Our job is to get these kids into college. Our job is not to play therapist. How could we, we're not trained in this. How are we supposed to know? Oh. What I like
0: to think about, Raybeth, is one question. If they had addressed it with you, at that age, what would you have wanted to happen? Would you have wanted to go through the criminal process? Would you have wanted, what would you have wanted? Had they? Has someone said, hey, Raybeth, can you tell us what's going on? I'm worried about you. And then you said what happened. What would you have wanted to be the next step?
2: At that time in my life, I really just wanted support. I didn't want to go through the criminal process only because his daughter was right. I had zero evidence. Unfortunately, this was a guy that knew what he was doing. He didn't leave me with any physical injuries. There was no DNA. And the only witness was his daughter who came to me and said, look, you go to police? All I have to say is I was there too and nothing happened with no witnesses, no DNA and no physical evidence. It wouldn't have gone anywhere. It would have been a, he said, she said, and I knew that right away. So I would not have wanted to go through the criminal process because I knew it wasn't going to go anywhere, but I really just wanted somebody to know carrying this around by myself for so many years was so
1: heavy. So here you are carrying this terrible burden all the way through high school. You haven't told anyone. So what happened after you, high school? When did you start actually realizing that this was something you needed to deal with? What Tell us about your, your healing journey. And did your p- family ever find out? So uh,
2: I started my first year of college in 2003 at uh, Our Lady of the Elms College in Chickpea, Massachusetts. Elms didn't agree with me. Only stayed a year. Um, Ended up failing out at Elms College because, again, I was not academically focused and didn't do well. And there were some other factors also that played into my not saying. Uh, came home to the year at community college. And during that year, um, a really good friend of, me, friend of mine who has been like my emotionally adopted second mom since I was about 15 or 16 is a guidance counselor by career. And she helped me to apply to and eventually get accepted to Anna Maria College in Paxton, Massachusetts. We're just north of Worcester. And it was while I was at Anna Maria College, uh, our director of student success, I can laugh now, uh, he, I guess he kind of during our first interview in March of 2005, he suspected that I was a survivor of this kind of trauma. And he knew being a man, I would not tell him. And he decided to try and test out his theory on his own. So he camped behind me in a dark classroom one night and grabbed me by my shoulders to see what would happen. And he very quickly found out what happened. I was lucky I was not tossed out of the school after the reaction I had. Um, I did punch him. And he came to me and said, okay, talk. I now have confirmation that you are a survivor of this kind of trauma. You are going to deal with this from this point on. And he mandated me to therapy. And the first therapy session i walked out and Went. this isn't for me like i nope i'm good and within i want to say about a week after that i was out exploring my new campus and i happened into this cool old farmhouse on campus and this woman stepped out of an office blonde haired blue eyed your kind of stereotypical vision of what we of what we think of when we think of like an angel descending from heaven She very literally looked like an angel coming down from heaven. And yeah, so she basically told me she knew I was a survivor and that she could help me. She wanted to help me, but that I needed to want the help and that she really was not giving me a choice in the matter. And she brought me into her office and sat me down and said, talk. And I found myself not being able to verbalize it. So she handed me a journal and said, do you think you can write it out? And I sat there for a good two hours and wrote every detail out. And I mm-hmm. handed it back to her and she read through it quickly and looked at me and said, do you understand that you were kidnapped? And I was like, no, I wasn't. Like I went willingly. Like he offered to take us for pizza and I went and she looked at me and said, right. Okay. But did you actually go for pizza? Like, did you drive there or have pizza drive home? No. She said, right. By legal definition, he kidnapped you and sexually assaulted you. It took me a good probably six months after that to really accept the fact. The sexual assault, I understood. It took me about six months to fully accept that I had been kidnapped. That had been one of the hardest pieces for me to accept for myself. Because unfortunately in this country, when we think about kidnapping, when we think about the man in the car driving up to the five-year-old and saying, I lost my puppy. You know, will you help me come? We don't think of kidnapping or abductions happening to older teenagers. That's unfortunately in this country, that's not what is envisioned. We think of these very, very stereotypical situations and mine didn't fit that definition. And so it took me a long time to understand that kidnapping happens in all forms. But what I came to find out was that the woman was the director of the Molly Bish Child Advocacy Center on our campus. And soon after that, she introduced me to Johnny Maggie Bish. And for those that uh, are not familiar with the Molly Bish case, Molly was a 16-year-old lifeguard in West Warren, Massachusetts. She was there her eighth day of work as a lifeguard at Cummins Pond in West Warren. Molly was abducted from her lifeguarding post on June 27, of 2000, was missing three years. And unfortunately, three years later, her partial skeletal remains were located in Palmer, Massachusetts, about three miles from the pond. We are going into the 22nd year, and unfortunately, Molly's killer is still at large, Uh, but her parents took me in. They gave me an internship, and I began traveling with John and Maggie Bish and with their older daughter, Heather Bish, uh, conducting child ID kit programs and speaking on abduction prevention. And my work at the Molly Bish Center honestly saved my life, and it gave me my voice and my life back. I think maybe we could wrap up with one
0: final question from each of myself and, and Claire way back. I really like how physically angry you've expressed yourself. It's so cool and rare to me. You know, you, you said you punched someone you wanted to, I don't know I if did. you did.
2: So our, but I so our director, the, so our director of student success, um, I think suspected that I was a survivor the day we first met and he knew being a man, I would not tell him the truth. So I was in a classroom one night waiting for classes to start. And I was the first one there. And he came up behind me and he grabbed me by the shoulders to see how I would react. I jumped up five feet in the air,
1: whipped around and I punched him. I understand why he did that. But I I have also said those, that really bothers me that he tested you out that way. (laughs) I realized that you had to be kind of pushed, but that that's, Not good to re-traumatize someone, but anyway, they got through somehow. So tell us us what you're doing now. I mean, what's happening now? You're in grad school and you're becoming a social worker?
2: I am. So I'm at Boston College. Uh, I'm in the MSW program, and it's a three-year program. I graduate next year, one year to go, um, and I just completed my internship at Jane Doe No More, where I've been a Survivor Speak member for three years. And I have currently been working as my internship project on getting Aaron's Law implemented in all the schools in my state. It was the Aaron's Law was passed almost eight years ago now. July will be eight years. And unfortunately, it has not been implemented in a whole lot of districts. Right now, my count only stands at four school districts since 2014 who have implemented it. So I'm currently working with the state to try to get Aaron's Law implemented and ended up learning actually recently that the reason that it has not been implemented was because when Aaron's Law was passed, there was a secondary bill on professional development that was supposed to be passed alongside Aaron's Law that was not passed. And after contacting one of my state representatives and getting a list of other state representatives who were on the fence about passing that professional development bill and spending days upon days emailing them for a couple of months, during the last day of the legislative session, two weeks ago, three weeks ago,
1: the bill on professional development did pass. Oh, great. Right. So th- is that the funding for the training? Is that what that is It is. All right. Yep. Good for you. Thank you.
0: Well, so, I, Katie,
1: you probably have a question.
0: Um, no, I, I think we're, we're really good. You've taken us, Raybeth, on an important and powerful journey of what happened to you at such a young age. And clearly, it's inspired you to do so much good work, and I think you're a hero, um, heroine, heroine, heroine,
2: mm-hmm. heroine
0: to <laughs> our, our listeners um, because you, you, you did get angry, and you did decide to change things, and you continued that f- important fight. So my honor and congratulations to you for persevering, and at such a young mm-hmm. age, having the vision and fortitude
2: to do so. Thank you so much. I mean, a lot of it came from being at the Molly Bish Center and having the opportunity to conduct the child ID kit programs and to really be a part of making sure that no other child or teen ever goes through what I have gone through. And God forbid they do go through what I went through, that their parents have that child ID kit pro- you know, booklet with them to hand to law enforcement. Because one of the things that John and Maggie Bish found after Molly went missing was that state police came to them looking for just an everyday normal head and shoulders photo of their daughter, Molly. And they didn't have a recent one. Their last head and shoulders, just everyday photo of her was from three or four years prior. And they, the Bish family ended up learning from the national center for missing and exploited children that over 70% of children who are recovered alive, who have been kidnapped come home because of a regular everyday photo. And that became really powerful to me, and so now to be able to be a part of protecting those kids, where we do these child ID kit programs, so that God forbid that child or teen go missing, that parent has a complete, has a completed booklet with that child's photo, their fingerprints, all relevant information on the child, uh, you know, all the information that state police would need to get, get to work right away. And the faster state police can get to work on locating that child, the better chance that child has of being recovered alive.
1: Thank you for that. I, I have to ask one question because you heard from your quote unquote friend not too long ago, didn't you? I
2: did. I, I, I think
1: people need to hear, hear that.
2: So in December of 2006, I actually received a private Facebook message from this former friend of mine, essentially telling me that she and her had become born again Christians and that God had forgiven them. So I should too. And that she really wanted to be friends again. And I once again messaged her back and said, I asked you to leave me alone. I don't want to be friends again. If you contact me again, I do have an attorney standing by. I will press for harassment charges. Leave. And I haven't heard from her since. And I ended up deleting
1: her and blocking her and the rest of her family on all social media. Less than to anyone else. That's the way to handle, uh, handle assessment. And the fact that she thinks that you should be it's not up to her to forgive herself. I mean, I, it's, your, it's up to you whether or not to forgive. That's really something.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much. That's and, awesome. Yeah. So Claire, can you um, close us
1: out with our listeners? Sure. Of course. So thank you, Ray Beth, for sharing your story with us. Thank you to all of our listeners who um, sat in and were witness to her story. We're grateful to all of you for joining us for this episode of Dear Katie Survivor Stories. If you need support but don't know where to find it, visit takebackthenight.org for our list of resources and how to reach our legal support hotline. You can also help other survivors by subscribing to the podcast and sharing it far and wide. Please consider posting it on your social media. Make sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely provided by volunteers. Thank you to all of them, and thank you, listeners, for being present today and remember always self care is essential to healing and to thriving.
0: That's so clear and um, thank you again Ray Bath and for our listeners and supporters we look forward to another episode in coming weeks continue to join in for support and healing journeys. Take care.